Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, hi, my name is Carl and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. Please turn in your Bibles to page 562 or the book Song of Solomon. If you're new with us, we do have um, Bibles around you and you can just grab one of those and turn to page 562. Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at this quite an incredible book, The Song of Solomon. It is unlike most other books in the Bible. It reads as poetry or like song lyrics. And to understand song lyrics, you don't really read them like you would an instruction manual. So we need to approach the book quite differently. Over the last few weeks, we've been in this book, Song of Solomon, learning about what it means to understand the joy of love in the context of marriage. The joy of love in the context of marriage. We've looked at the beautiful way that a couple have gotten together. We've looked at the beautiful way that a couple have got married. We've looked at the beautiful way that a couple have um, joined together in sexual union. Everything has been so idolised at this point. Everything has been so um, ideal. Everything has been so surreal. They've been the perfect Instagram couple up until now, right? The first four chapters present them as this unbelievably surreal couple. Uh, In the 90s, there was this uh, Brisbane band called Savage Garden, and they wrote this song, I Knew I Loved You Before I Met You. Do you guys know that song? That I knew I loved you before I met you. In key, close. Dangerously close. Vincent sung last week, and so I'm just trying to to keep up. I thought that that, that would jog your memory, but... 25 people just left. <laughs> song is magic, right? It's a song about this guy who meets this girl and she's so perfect that it's like he's dreamt her into existence. Everything that he wanted in a perfect girl has just popped up right in front of his face. And that's the picture that we have up until this point. First four chapters, surreal and ideal. And this is the first time in four chapters, now stepping into the fifth, that the ideal becomes the real. That reality hits. And the author of this chapter is trying to get us to ask the question, how does a relationship survive a reality check? How does a marriage survive on the other side of the mountain? How does a relationship survive when the ideal passes, the surreal passes, and you're living in the real? You're living in your first reality check. Every single relationship, no matter whether it was born on the footsteps of Disneyland, will experience reality. When my wife and I got together, uh, we went on a date, and then I needed to wait 13 years for the second date, right? And then when we got together, eventually, after all together for a while, when we would kiss, I would start laughing when we were kissing because I couldn't believe that I had finally jagged it. I couldn't believe that we'd finally got into a relationship after 13 years of waiting. We finally ended up in this relationship. and It was so beautiful and sweet. I remember that um, uh, I told her that the two things I really loved in the world were basketball and banana caramel pie. And then she sent me this photo. I don't know if you have that photo there. She sent me this photo of her in an NBA jersey and she just made me homemade banana caramel pie. Amen, amen. Right? (laughs) Everything was so surreal and so awesome, right? But no matter how good a relationship starts, it will always come face to face with reality. 
Our relationship was born out of a lot of beautiful moments, but it also included some very real seasons of difficulty. And every person who has their eyes fixed on being in a flourishing relationship needs to know how to deal with this world when reality hits. And there are four scenes in this chapter, in the fifth chapter of the book of Song and Solomon, that's going to pose this question and answer this question for us. And the big idea that we need to see from this chapter is that the real hero of marriage success is not emotion, it is conviction. It is the decisions we make. Not that we demonize emotion, but emotions are not the leader of our relationship, amen? We are led by our conviction. And so we're going to journey through this book of Song of Solomon in chapter 5. So why don't you look down at chapter 5 with me, and we're going to start off in uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And this is, remember, that this is a song. These are poetic lyrics. And so let's, let's pay attention here. This is the woman, woman speaking. Uh, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Scene one, unmet expectations. This seems to be what's happening here, is that the lovers have planned some kind of rendezvous. And she's gone to bed. My heart was awake. A sound my beloved is knocking. I slept, but my heart was awake. That they've prepared this kind of rendezvous, but he has failed to show. And so she's got out of the attire that she was wearing for um, this kind of lover's rendezvous. And she's put on her, like, Peppa Pig slippers and her veggie tails onesie and she's jumped into bed and then he's rolled in a few hours later and he's knocked at the door and he's still expecting their rendezvous and so he tries to use the he tries to sweet talk his wife by by, by speaking about how awesome the 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 wetness of the rain looks on his beautiful hair can you see the arrogance of people with hair even thousands of years ago <laughs> can you believe it So he's trying to entice her towards this relationship. And she's saying, I'm not interested, it's inconvenient. I've already gotten ready for bed, I'm not going to open this door, right? So they plan rendezvous and it's failing. That's scene number one. And then we're in verse four, it says, look down in your Bibles, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So my beloved has put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Something that he has done has aroused her attention. It can't have been physical because it's on the other side of the door. So maybe something that he said has enticed her, and she's decided, all right, I'm interested, I'm keen, I'm interested. And then she gets ready really, really quickly. So much so that the myrrh, the kind of um, ancient perfume, is still just splashed all over her hand. And so she gets herself ready really quickly and, he, and she runs to the door. Now let's turn to scene number two. Look down at verse six. This scene is called Bad to Worse. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. 
So not only has uh, the gentleman bailed on their rendezvous after being left waiting, that the woman has pursued him out into vulnerability into the midst of the night where she's met some watchmen who have beaten her and have abused her and appear to have raped her. Now, this is, this is an interesting section. This whole chapter um, actually reads much like a dream sequence, much like a previous chapter in the book of Song of Solomon. So we need to remember that this is not a, a... It's actually a fictional story. And so every single image that we read in the book of Song of Solomon is trying to convey an image towards us. So it's not... Um, we shouldn't feel caught up with the image of a woman being raped, but we should be asking the question, what is that trying to reveal to us? And this whole chapter is trying to paint this picture of a woman who was about to have an intimate encounter, and now she feels like she stepped out in her vulnerability, and maybe her chance to experience the love that she had previously had would be lost, and she could never return to that love. This scene is really awful. Things have got from bad, and then things have turned to worse. So she needs comfort. So what she does is that she turns to the men have failed her in her life. So then she turns to the women. So look down in your Bibles in verse uh, number 8. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So surely her besties will provide her with the care that she needs, right? She's turned to her like her bridesmaids and she said, My husband, I can't find him. I've stepped out into the middle of the night. I can't find him anywhere. I'm vulnerable. I'm not safe. I'm alone. Where is my lover? Will you help me find him? So she turns to her friends. And we come to scene three, which I've called Critics Pounce. So look down in verse nine. How will her friends respond? What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us. So the women she has just asked to help her find her uh, lover have returned to her and said, how is your husband any better than every single man standing on every single corner of the street? You are one in a million. There is a million in this city. That's the point that they're trying to make. Now, you might disagree with the interpretation because that's a bit of a cynical interpretation of that verse. It might be that they were just genuinely inquiring about why he was so good. But I do believe that the men and the women in this narrative, in this, in this chapter, are presented as obstacles to the woman's love. So she turns to them for help. And no matter what your um, opinion is on how you interpret this verse, it does lead us to this woman getting an opportunity to stand on top of her lover's soapbox and declare in the only passage in all of Scripture that praises a man's body, which maybe tells you something, the only other time in all of Scripture that a man's body is praised is Jesus Christ in Revelation. It's the only time in all of Scripture that a man's body is praised, and she stands up on her soapbox to declare the way that she perceives her lover. That there are other people that look upon her lover and think that he's not all that. And she chooses this moment to declare the way that she perceives her lover. So let's look at scene four together. And verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy. Those locks, man, those locks. Black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. 
His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. And that woman's response seems to be so convincing that she gets the women back on side. And they respond by saying, in chapter 6, verse 1, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And in further evidence that this is actually much more of a dream narrative, we go from this conversation with no explanation and, and, and no description turns straight to the lovers uh, reuniting in bed together. You see in verse 2 and 3, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the garden and to gather the lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That's what happens in that chapter. So what do we do with that? Lovers plan a rendezvous. It fails. He bails, she chases him, gets beaten up and shamed. Women tell her that a man is ordinary. She says that he's extraordinary. Her friends rally and then their lovers reunite and make love. That's what happens in that chapter. What's the point of all that? We need to remember that the question that the author is posing to us is, how does a relationship survive a reality check? Well, the first, very first thing that this song is trying to do to us, to get us to see, is to embrace reality. There was only one moment when the marriage relationship was perfect, and that was at the start of the Garden of Eden, not even at the end. Every single relationship after the garden is a fractured relationship. And no matter how perfect the season that you're in, you will intersect with a reality check in your relationship. And that does not mean that your relationship is shipwrecked. That does not mean you need to abandon your relationship. It means that we are living in the reality of a fallen and broken world. And in this fallen and broken world, we have choices that we can make that can either lead to the success and maturity of a relationship or can lead to a disastrous relationship fixated on emotion where you bounce from experience to experience chasing something that God has sought to provide you in the context of marriage. So what kind of choices does this passage reveal to us that we need to um, take light of? Well, choice number one I want to present to you I've called Heaven's Eyes. Choose to see the beauty in God's creation. Choose to see the value in the person that God has created. Uh, my son Jack, when we were on holidays for three weeks, I bought my um, kid a drum amp. So we have an electric drum kit at home. And so I bought him a drum amp so he'd be able to hear himself play drums. And I'd leave him in the room and every time I'd come back, I would see him trying to destroy that drum amp. So he would take a drumstick and he'd start smashing the drum amp. Or he would, I just one time I just caught him kicking the drum amp for fun. Why does he do that? He does that because he has no understanding of its value. This passage would have us see that in and of itself, every single person is valued by God. 
Every single person in their identity is a child of the Father, is a servant of the Son, is sent out by the Holy Spirit. In and of itself, every single person has value and should be valued. But also in the covenant relationship of marriage, you do take on a new kind of value. Where the sexual expression that God has gifted for you, that has purpose for you, that God wants you to enjoy, you take up with your marriage partner. The sole focus of your sexual expression, your physical expression, is supposed to be the bullseye of your marriage partner. They have incredible value because for nowhere else should your sexual expression go. For nowhere else should your physical expression go. But God has gifted you, that person, for your sexual expression to flourish. Daniel Estes writes, In marriage it is, too, it is easy to lose sight of how special one's spouse is. The inevitable duties of life can dilute the delight of intimacy, so that what used to provoke excitement now evokes only a yawn. Indifference is a lethal blow to intimacy because it communicates that the relationship is not as valued as it should be. You see, marriage shouldn't send your attraction and affection for one another into apathy. It should actually send your attraction and your affection for one another into delight. The more and more you stay committed to the covenant relationship, the gift that God has purposed for you, you see your relationship flourish as you live out the value that God has placed on each person. How's the adoration that these couples have for each other? The first four chapters are the man describing the beauty of the woman. Then in this chapter, the description of the man's head, the description of his legs, his, legs, his arms like rods. The way he describes her face, her teeth, her legs. They see each other as people of perfect beauty, which is interesting because no one has ever been perfect. You see in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, he writes, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Really, really interesting because thousands of years ago, they didn't have braces, they didn't have Clearacel. They didn't have Rexona. Are we to believe that this couple is actually the only perfected creature in all of history's civilizations? Are we to believe that? Of course we're not. Otherwise, this book would be no hope to us. If it was just a recorded account of two perfected creatures, then there's nothing that we could learn. What I do believe is true, and what I think the point here is actually that the couple weren't flawless, but they were flawless to each other. Because they were God's perfect gift to each other to live out the sexual expression that God has gifted to them. That in marriage, you're choosing to see someone in a way that God has purposed them to be seen. They are the one that you let your eyes wander over. They are the one that God has gifted you to unlock this gift of sex. That's what it means to have a perfect bride and a perfect groom. Not that you would be super tall, not that you would have hair, not you, you would be tanned, not any of those things, but that the person that you marry is the person that God has gifted you, that your sexuality would flourish. It's conviction before emotion. Emotions aren't the enemy of a successful marriage, but they are also not the leader. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. What that, um, that proverb reveals to us in light of Song of Solomon is that we trust that the person that God has brought into our life that we're married to is everything that we need for flourishing in that marriage context. That God has created for us the gift of a marriage partner in which we can flourish with that person. And the more that we, we live by conviction rather than emotion, the more that we get to experience the joy of that marriage relationship. And the application here is so incredible for married people and for single people. Because the application is, right now, would I start training myself to be a person of conviction? Would I right now start training myself not to be led constantly by emotion? See, when you look out at the sunset, of course it's supposed to conjure up emotions for you. You're supposed to feel happy and glad and warm, right? But those days where the storm comes, you're not supposed to move town. All of relationships won't just go from good season to bad season to good season. There will be good seasons mixed in with tough seasons. There will be tough seasons mixed in with the good. But we trust that every single person that God has given us, every person that God has given us in our marriage relationships, Beck for me and me for Beck, is the perfect person that God has given me for my relationship to flourish. The choice to see with heaven's eyes. Choose to see your partner the, God, the way that God would have you see them. Choice number two, sacred door. Choose to put your marriage partner ahead of yourself. Choose to put your marriage partner ahead of yourself. The door is an interesting image that the writer gives us. The the first time that we see this door is the inconsiderate approach of a husband to uh, his lover in the middle of the night. We see the resistance of the woman to open the door because it is inconvenient. Then we see the woman walk boldly through the door to search for her lover who she longs for. In each of these scenes, the Author is wanting us to see the battle between selfishness and sacrifice. In each scene, there is an opportunity for someone to lay down their own agenda for the sake of the other. This relationship, perhaps in our context, would have been over at this point because it fails a strike three process. Strike number one is when the man presumes upon the lover in the midnight hour. Strike number two is when the woman denies her lover's advances out of inconvenience. And then strike number three is when the woman opens the door to find her lover gone. The whole story could be over at this point if it wasn't for the choice the woman makes to lay down her own comfort for the sake of her marriage. And she steps through the door and puts herself out in vulnerability. When you get married, your life is no longer your own. You lay down your desires for the sake of the person you're married to. You lay down your dreams and your hopes for the the sake of the person that you're married to. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 to 5 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, 
that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is an image of one person serving another person. And if I was to be so bold, what that means for us in our marriage, if you would allow me to be vulnerable, is that more often than not, um, I'm the one that needs to lay down my desire for sex from time to time because I know my wife appreciates a break. And I know that my wife often will serve me by giving up her preference not to have sex because she's chosen to not let her emotions lead her. And what we find in our relationship is the more that we serve each other, the more joy that we experience as we've chosen to serve each other. It's true that laying down your life for the sake of someone else sounds great in theory, but it's also often messy in practice, strikes at the heart of our pride. It's easy, then difficult, and then difficult, and then easy. It's complex, but it's worth it. But tonight, what I was really hoping to do was to try and land the plane for us. And it is true that sometimes, as preachers, we can speak so much in theory that you lose all application. And so, without pretending to be an expert on this thing that we call marriage, I did want to be able to walk you through what it kind of looked like for me and my wife in the first five years of our marriage. And so, I spoke to my wife, Beck, and asked if you, she would be comfortable to tell you guys firsthand what it's like to be married to a bloke like me, and she has willingly accepted. So, can we just welcome Beck to the stage as she comes to... Uh, no, I'm okay, thank you. Hey, babe, how are you? So um, we did have a f- few questions, and the first question I wanted to ask was, why did you, why did you wait, make me wait 13 years for round two? I was just probably wanting um, you to be worthy. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah slay good. a few dragons. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. Good, so, nice. Um, so... 13 years, so we went on a date that went really badly, and then we went on our separate journeys. 13 years later, we came back and went on a date. Six months we were dating, and then seven months engaged, and then around that? Yeah, four months engaged, okay. married within 10 months. Yeah, awesome. awesome. Um, <laughs> dates are important. Specifically. Dates are important. <laughs> it's really important, yeah. I've told that story so many times yeah, to people. And you've got it wrong every time. Every, not every time. time it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. great. <laughs> um, so can you give people a bit of a picture about um, uh, or what's your best memory of our first year of our marriage? Um, our first year, um, we did some really awesome travelling together. We had a really fun time um, in Thailand and we had a really awesome time in Europe. And Carl actually did a, um, a bodybuilding competition. That wasn't the highlight so much, but we, <laughs> we did actually get to train together during that time in the mornings and that was really awesome for me because Carl is um, very good at picking up weights and putting them down and so I wasn't as good at that and so he actually taught me a lot of stuff during that time. It was really bonding for us to be able to do that so I really loved that side of stuff. In mm. Yeah and I would also say that there was um, like in the first year of our marriage that there was like lots of fun things that we got to do like moving to our first house together and, and, and that was great. <laughs> but the, the first year of our marriage wasn't awesome. Um, but can you just give me, from your perspective, what it was like to be married to me for the first year of our marriage? Um, yeah, our first year was very difficult. Um, 
We, I come from a previous marriage and previous long-term relationships and um, Carl had sort of come from shorter-term relationships um, and he hadn't dated for quite a while. So he was really set in his single ways and I was used to relationships and so I had this expectation coming into our marriage of what I thought it would look like. And I found that very difficult because he wasn't very emotionally available. Um, and he mentioned before that he took a long time. He sort of sought me out for a while. And um, when we got together, I kind of expected him to be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, I'll do anything I can to keep her and I'll be, you know, really affectionate and emotional. And he wasn't that. And that was really hard for me. Um, he had what we affectionately called Carl time. So we'd get home and he would just be like, oh, hey, see ya. And he'd just go for about an hour and a half or something and play NBA because he needed downtime. And I would just be like, oh, we don't, we're not talking now at all. Okay, cool. That's good. Yeah, no worries. Cool, 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 cool. So we just decided, you know, we just won't do that. And then um, even sexually, he was um, not very available as well. And our intimacy was quite broken in the first year. And that was very difficult for me because I was quite confused. Um, but through that, on a positive note, um, I did feel this real sense of calm and peace through it all because I knew that Carl was the one that God had designed for me. Um, and so whilst I found it quite difficult, there was always this underlying um, feeling of strength from God that I was going to be okay and we were going to be okay, um, even though at that time it was very unclear how we were going to get through what I seemed that was very difficult at the time. Yeah. It was... Um some people go in a relationship from a, like a honeymoon period to a reality check. And I would say that we probably started, like while there was that kind of funny beginning, I think that we probably went from reality check to honeymoon a little bit more. And my, my, uh, my background prior to being with Beck is that um, I went out and uh, had never really experienced the world and thought that was a thing that you needed to do. And then so went from being you know, like a 25-year-old virgin to being someone who treated it more as a social kind of recreational activity. So sex for me, I didn't know how to translate it into a marriage. And so when we got together, yeah, it was like it would have been really horrible to be married to me because it was, I went from being a person that Beck would have assumed would have been very sexually interested to being like I was quite um, in that way sexually confused. And probably for the first year of our marriage, like we went from like, you used to make a joke that it was, like, on a schedule, like... Yeah, it was Friday night fun. Yeah, yeah, like, Friday night, like... <laughs> and you could kind of count it down, which is, like... It kind of takes all the romance and the joy out of it. And, and I'd also say that in my immaturity that they, I, just, I just went, well, you just needed to deal with that because that's just the way that I am. And then, so the first year of our marriage, like... And into the second year, because at the end of our first year of our marriage, I just said, well, I'm going to do a bodybuilding competition. So we went from, like, my issues being challenges for us, to then saying, well, now I'm going to do this competition, which means you need to jump on board with what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, that was hard as well, because one of the things I loved to do in a marriage was I liked cooking. Like, I loved making beautiful food and stuff, and he just wanted chicken and broccoli. And so I didn't, I was like, oh, but like, this, is, this is something I can add to our relationship. You'll love this. And so, no, no, he didn't want any of it. So that was very, that was another factor where I was like, I just wasn't prepared for that. And that was where it was just like, 
the reality check was for us was very early like mm. it was just like oh this is this is it this is what it's going to be like there's no like mm. oh you want to do that that's cool we both just were kind of like oh just have to do something that we don't want to do <laughs> so in those early years were you, are you saying that you just weren't enjoying being married no, that's not true. Like, I definitely um, enjoy... Do you reckon he just got me up here to find out? Like, <laughs> Can I, I ask feel, anything? I feel like this is... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely... I still loved being married because, um, you know, like, I knew that when I said for better or for worse, that there was, there was going to be worse, and we, I didn't expect it to be straight up the bat, you know, but I did want it to be that like, this is my vow, I'm going to be with you for better or for worse, and in front of God I made that vow. And so, um, yeah, the, the worst was hard, but it, it was still God that was able to sustain us. And I'm not saying that, like, that whole time I was going, God, you've got to get me through this. One of the reasons why we really struggled is because we didn't really include God in our relationship at first. We didn't... Um, we didn't come together in prayer. We didn't seek him to figure out our problems. We kind of just tried to troop through it on his own. And I mean, if I'm relating to the woman in the story, yeah, I had my mates and I was like, what is the deal? And, and they, they weren't saying there's other guys out there, but they were sort of saying, you know, like, oh yeah, he's not doing a very good job. Um, and so we, you know, we struggled a lot through that, but there was just this um, underlying truth that we both believe that we were meant to be together um, and that God gave one another, um, mm. us one another and so um, there was a lot of joy to be found in that and I feel like if God hadn't have put us through that worst part to start off with, um, that later on when we had Jack and he was a really like tough baby and things like that, we, we wouldn't have been able to, I think we would have really crumbled because we didn't really have the reality check up and so we we knew who we were there wasn't any kind of mm. unsure uncertainty there yeah and I, I felt like the like while it is true that God forgives you like and praise the Lord that he does because uh, you know like a lot of my past is like I actually think it's okay to regret some of the mistakes that you've made like I don't really understand what no regrets means I definitely have this regrets around the people that I've heard um, and so you come to God and he forgives you but there is also a natural consequence for sin and I think like, just, just to warn our, our people is that the, you, you, don't, you don't think that going into sin that it can do long-term damage to you, but it does build up patterns of behaviour that you will need to deal with at some point in your life. So it was not until a couple of years into our marriage that we went to Europe. And I was walking with Beck in, in Europe. And I had this real fear. I was hanging out with Beck's parents like, when we were engaged. And then Les Crawford said... I was trying to get to him, like, how do you have downtime? Because I was just high on downtime. I was like, how do you have downtime? And he goes, oh, I just hang out with Elizabeth. And I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> and, I, and it was like, if there's anyone in the world that I'd want to hang out with, it'd just be Elizabeth just all day. And I was like, what a liar. <laughs> and it wasn't until we were actually cruising in Europe when I was like, I actually would just want to hang out with you all day. If I could hang out with anyone all day long, it'd be you and not me. And that, was, that, would, that didn't come quick. And I was really surprised when it happened. Like, I was like, when I'm on my own, I'm like, all right, I'm done being on my own now. I want my wife. More than I want my best friends, like in the church, I want to be with my wife. And it's actually a bit of a journey of God softening my heart to that reality to then even know how to step into maturity with that. So we've been married for, we just had a five-year anniversary. So we are no marriage veterans, but we just had that a couple of weeks ago. What would be the, be the best year of our marriage for you and why? 
Um, I think this past year um, would be our best year that we've had. Um, we had Tommy this year, which was a highlight. Um, and in that time, um, I felt that I really got to see Carl become like a really hands-on dad, especially with Jack, because he just didn't have a choice. <laughs> I had Tommy and he had Jack, and that meant that um, he was able to just really demonstrate to me um, that he is able to like guide and and like nurture Jack in a way and I was able to trust him to do that and earlier in our marriage I definitely wouldn't have been happy to trust him with Jack at all I would have been like no 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 you don't know what you're doing and and um, I need you to just do it this way and my way but now going through years together we found this real um, deep sense of trust mm. um, that has been built and um, yeah I think this year especially, um, I feel that um, we've just walked together spiritually a lot closer. Um, I think Todd Wagner coming down for the conference was really um, a huge impact on us. Um, and we kind of tried to put things in place that we hadn't put in place before, like praying together mm. and, um, and actually sort of seeking God for things. And one of the biggest things that I did wrong in our marriage was that um, I would take everyone's side but Carl's. So he would come home um, from circumstances and he would he would talk about people and he would say, you know, this is what happened, I'm frustrated. And, and I wouldn't necessarily say to him, you're wrong, but I would say, well, maybe that person's just trying to you know, say this and maybe that person is just trying to help you and, and maybe if you did this and I used to try and, uh, you know, just subtly help him be a better man um, and it wasn't at all what he needed and I think that I learned really quickly that what he wanted, um, he didn't need me to just be a yes wife but he did want me to love him in his flaws and his faults and he did want me to be genuinely interested in what he had to say and he did want me to support him um, and when I was able to do that and respectfully um, speak to him and not come across like I knew better, um, that really elevated our intimacy in conversation. Um, and also it's helped us, because of that, um, helped us intimacy sexually as well because we've just felt closer to one another and once trust is formed, it means that you are happy to give yourself to the other person mm. without that fear um, mm. and that worry. And yeah, so this year definitely has been my best year. How about you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think that's been our best year. Yeah, yeah for sure. But I just wanted to ask you, like, here, the, we, um, you know, you don't have good seasons and bad seasons. You have good mixed with tough, tough, tough mixed with good. And um, there's like, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other blokes out there that probably got a better resume than I do. So what, what's like giving you the strength to keep serving me through the like five years deep? Like why would you keep hanging around like you have? Um, yeah, I, I was told quite a while ago by a friend that um, people in your life, you know, your, your children, your husband, um, your friends, they're gifts from God. And they're not, are they just, that means that they're gifts, but they're on borrowed time, basically. And, you know, any time God can say, you know, this is my gift to you, but I need to take it back now. And that sounds a little bit morbid because you're not thinking every day, my husband might die, or my children might die, or my friends might die. But it's just basically that understanding that I, that you view your friends and your family and, and your loved one as somebody that may not be there 
all the time. Um, and you think about the perspective that you have if you find out your friend's got a, like a terminal diagnosis. The way you treat them is different. You don't, you know, you don't think, you don't, definitely don't treat them selfishly. If they want to do something, you're like, yes, we are going bungee jumping. That will be fun. Mm. Let's do that. So I wanted um, that analogy, that eternal um, perspective to be the way that I treated you. Um, and so when the small stuff happens, trying as best to think that, you know what, this is my husband and it doesn't matter that he didn't put the dishes in the dishwasher. It's right there. The dishes are there, and he put. The, but I am okay with that. You know, doesn't uh, sound like you're I, okay with that. <laughs> and so, but that it's honestly the stuff that you can have fights over, and people know that who's married. You know, it's the, and that's actually the stuff I thought we'd fight over originally, but it was bigger than that. But it's it's knowing that God has given you as a gift to me. Yeah. Um, and that you're there to make me a better person. Mm. And so serving you is actually like a way that I can glorify God. Yeah, you have um, to choose to do it. Yeah, and you have to choose to do it. You have to mm. go in that moment that, you know, God wants me to be able to serve you and that is a way of glorifying him. It's a way that our sons can see mm. that, you know, he's working in us and my responses to you are super important um, because you need to be loved and if I serve you and I refresh you, yeah. um, then you're able to come to work and you're able to refresh young people and your job is important. And so that's one of and the I'm reasons why. I'm, I'm often oblivious to anything I've done wrong until like two days later. And yeah. so you have to choose to love me like when your emotions are going, oh my goodness, this is happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and it's the same with you. Like you have to love me when I'm, I'm you know, in my own head or if I'm emotional or I'm, you know... Hungry. You can't think of anything no, you do wrong. No, no, <laughs> uh, no, I'm hungry. If I'm hungry, oh my gosh. Well, that's when we fight because <laughs> I haven't got the emotional capacity to deal. But no, like, I think, <laughs> no, I definitely think that it's about that eternal perspective. You may not be here forever, and I, you know, I can't picture my life without you. So I want to live every life, that, every moment that I can serve you in a way mm. that is God honouring, and I think that's God's calling on a wife. Yeah, so. yeah awesome. Can we thank Beck for coming up? And Thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. Jace, could the band come back up on stage? I'd appreciate that. That's cool. Uh, in a season in, in our marriage, just as, um, as we start closing here, um, there was a, a season where our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Timon and Tegan, were so gracious to take me and Beck out for dinner on a number of occasions where we just needed old, older wise people um, to show love to us. And I remember they were in this um, conversation where it was a lot of like, uh, she won't meet my needs and then a lot of he won't meet my needs. And uh, pastor asked me the question, well, how does the gospel apply here? And it's so strange that I'd never asked that question before. I'd never thought to myself, how does the fact that I'm an adopted child of the Father make a difference here? That I have this new identity in Christ, that I have a Father who loves me, loves to give good gifts to his children. Even in the midst of complicated situations and trying seasons, that God loves to give good gifts to his children. My wife doesn't give me everything I need, God does. I don't need to place my wife in the position of God and say every day 
We will fail each other. Every day I fail my wife, every day she fails me. I learned that the gospel means that I come to God, my Father, with my need. And every single thing that Beck does in my life is a blessing. Out of the good, gracious gift of the Father, that everything I need comes from Him. Word of God teaches me to lean upon His wisdom. I don't need to let emotions lead our relationship. I lead by conviction. What the gospel does for me is that the gospel gives me comfort where I don't have comfort and strength where I don't have strength. And you might be married or you might be not married. You might have no intention of getting married, but I know that the word of the Lord is that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, when you repent from sin, when you turn to him and accept this free gift of grace, you get this unbelievable gift of Jesus Christ living in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so in every single moment where you don't know your left hand from your right hand, God will comfort you and give you the strength that you need to serve your wife or your husband or that person in class, in university, who won't get off your back or that teacher who keeps failing you and they shouldn't or that family member that doesn't know the Lord. When you accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will give you everything you need in every single moment to glorify him if you would choose to lean upon the Lord. I would love to pray for you now if you feel comfortable to bow your head and close your eyes. You might be in a relationship that's tough. You might be in a relationship that you feel like is hanging by a thread. You might be thinking about what does it mean to prepare to be married. These are universal truths for God's people. But I do want to pray for those people in here that are newlyweds newlyweds or in married relationships. I just want to ask this in the privacy of your own heart, if you just would soften your heart to the Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would do your ministry now, that you would comfort us, that you would remind us that you will give us the strength to serve those people that that we find unlovable because we know that there was nothing in us that was lovable at all. God, I pray that you would teach us to make choices where our emotions are running wild. Teach us to love the other, to serve the other, to put their needs and their desires before our own, that we might be this picture that you've called us to be, the way that Jesus Christ serves the church. God, give us strength. Those people in married relationships, would you give them strength to serve? Those people that are not married in the room, I just pray that your spirit would teach Teach them what it means to live by conviction and choice and not emotion. And what that would mean for our culture to have people, hundreds of people that come from this church living their life by what feeds their conviction rather than emotion. God, we live in a complex culture at the moment where it seems like emotion reigns. And there are many, many times where we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. God, we just ask for spiritual renewal in our hearts, in our community, in this church, in this land for your glory. Would people return for the truth, return to the truth so that marriages would glorify you, so that divorce statistics would crumble, that children would be raised in families of love, and that we would be the kind of church that you've called us to be. Father, we thank you for the demonstration of Jesus' life, for the way that he laid his life down for us, so we might have this picture of the great servant, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, who suffered with joy, 
laying down his cross and joy, picking up his cross and joy. So I invite you to.